0: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Activist Listening, the podcast where I interview a collegiate activist about their movement. My name is Sophie Clark, and I'm a current senior at Middlebury College. I've always been blown away by my peers' commitment to justice and good, as well as their ability to get so much done way before I even get out of bed in the morning. I genuinely want to learn from them, and I also see that given the nature of intersectional justice, other organizing groups may be able to learn something from listening to each other. So today I will be starting off with one of the hottest topics on college campuses today, fossil fuel divestment. What is it? How do we do it? And how do we convince others to get on board? So what is it? Divestment is a cause that demands organizations and institutions with large investment portfolios or endowments to pull their investments from fossil fuel companies. Divestment is a grassroots movement started in approximately 2013 by concerned environmentalists who saw that the usual language around recycling and walking to work and other individual actions was not doing anything to significantly reduce carbon emissions. Activists realized that no matter how hard individuals worked, fossil fuel companies were still getting huge investments in their carbon production from the very institutions that the activists attended or worked for. They saw that without changing our financial system that rewards fossil fuel companies with monetary and also moral endorsements, our climate crisis will never be properly addressed. Although many critics of divestment say that the act itself doesn't help to reduce the amount of money flowing into fossil fuels, global divestment campaign leader and Middlebury professor Bill McKibben has stated that the real cause of divestment is to make fossil fuel companies into social pariahs thus morally forcing them to change their business to a more ethical and also sustainable model. The campaign has come a long way in the past decade, from initially being seen as a hopeless cause forwarded by a bunch of radical college kids against well-established and more allegedly knowledgeable institutions, to an international movement that has forced genuine change from UCLA to Oxford. The determination of divestment activists can be exemplified in the almost decade-long fight for divestment here at my institution, Middlebury College. So I'm very excited to have joining me today, one of the leaders of the Middlebury divestment movement from 2017 to 2021, also on a personal note, one of the first people that I met at Middlebury and who made me feel really at home here at Middlebury College. So please welcome the first ever guest to activist listening, Leaf Toronto. Thanks. All right, So I think we're going to just start off with a warm up round, um, just like a couple get to know you questions, like a little silly, um, but I definitely stole from my race rhetoric and protest. Partially class. for like race rhetoric and protest, right? Or you got the idea
1: in that class? I got the idea in the class. Yeah. That's cool. I took that class and used a lot of what I learned there in changing our messaging for
0: divestment. Oh, sick. And- okay. And- like Mr. Sanchez is awesome. And- Yeah, he's the best, the absolute best. Um, the first question I'm gonna ask is my absolute favorite question ever, which is, um, what is your most controversial non-political opinion? Like, for example, mine is that I strongly believe that Kris Jenner is the smartest woman in America, and like, I understand that we have like Sonia Sotomayor or whatever, but like, Kris Jenner took her daughter's (laughs) tape and turned it into like a multi-million dollar industry. So, just saying.
1: Um, This is embarrassing. My controversial opinion is I don't really like Star Wars. I really want to like Star Wars. Like I'm quite a big of a nerd and I like sci-fi, I like fantasy. All my friends do and they all like Star Wars and I just don't like it and I've tried to like it and I feel really embarrassed about this. Like I feel like I should like it and I want to but I just don't and it's sad. Oh
0: my god I'm with you on that. I don't like Star Wars either. It's just it's just not my thing. It's just not, and I respect that. And this is a safe space, and I will listen to you. (laughs) Um, Okay, my second question is: if you could convince anyone of anything, what would it be? I would probably convince like
1: the people in the ruling class to like give up their shit and like get over capitalism, so we could all move on and survive as a people. Um, That would be good. That would be really good. Can I pick I that? that? Can I convince that whole group, or does it have to be
0: one person? You know what? I'll give it to you. That's that's fair. Yeah, it's a little broad, but it's fine. Um, and my last question, um, for the warm-up round is, do you have um a memory, like a distinct memory of becoming aware of protests, like what they are, what they can do, and um, do you think that shaped you in any way for who you are now?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um. I have a couple, when I was in elementary school, we'd been learning about social movements in like our elementary school curriculum. And around the same time I realized, I went to nature center and I saw that there was this display that said styrofoam takes forever, like it never decomposes. Um, And I was like, well, we can't have that. And we had styrofoam in our cafeteria. And I had just been learning about like the civil rights movement in that like very watered down elementary school way. we're gonna have a styrofoam boycott. So I organized like this styrofoam boycott and everyone brought in their own plates to not use the styrofoam. And we eventually got the school to get rid of the styrofoam. And that was like, my first time was like, huh, something's working here. Uh, So that's like my little example, but bigger example when I was like in late middle school, early high school, became very aware of social movements that were happening around me. And like, I grew up in Philadelphia In Philadelphia, more broadly, like both fossil fuel resistance and Black Lives Matter and um, other movements like that, and started getting involved in those and um, attending and feeling like that collective power that comes from being in a protest with a lot of other people. So that was the more like actual protests I became aware of, but uh, becoming aware that maybe protesting works was like me being a goofy elementary schooler.
0: Okay, um, yeah, that is not a small protest at all. I feel like literally changing your school's dynamic around food and like how you serve the environment through your classes is like enormous. <laughs> yeah, that's massive. And my only rebellion in elementary school was not napping at nap time. Oh, it was, that's uh, good. <laughs> oh yeah, huge, huge stuff. <laughs> that's awesome. All right, um, so now that we know that you were a born activist, um, I'm gonna ask you some questions about divestment, um, when you came to Middlebury, how it um, developed while you were at Middlebury. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to first off ask, um, like when you got to Middlebury, what did divestment mean to you? Yeah,
1: um, I had been involved in fossil fuel resistance movements when I was in high school, like where I grew up. So we had been opposing a gas plant um, that was being built in one of the blackest lowest income, highest asthma rates neighborhoods. So there was a whole group of us working on that as an environmental justice struggle. Um, And also like opposing refineries. And there's a lot of fracking and a lot of gas plants and a lot of um, bomb oil trains and refineries. It's just a whole mess down in Philly. So I've been involved in some of that. Um, And so when I came to Middlebury it was it was very far away and it was a way that I could sort of tie my learning and work in college to like struggles that were happening back home and seeing how our institution was really supporting the fossil fuel industry and in hurting people I was like okay this is one thing I can do as a student to mitigate that and work with other students to um like be in support of a bigger movement of fossil fuel resistance and then also to practice organizing so we could use it for all sorts of different things. So that's what it really meant to me was a way to like tie my time in college to this broader movement that I cared a lot about. And I saw being hurt by decisions that universities, et cetera, were making.
0: And at at Middlebury, I feel like there's so many different organizations. There's so many causes to be passionate about what specifically about divestment were you like this is where i'm going to focus my time like this is the climate or the um like social justice issue on campus that it's going to be like the largest for me if it felt like it was the largest for you
1: yeah um i participated in a lot of student movements on campus so it wasn't it wasn't just divestment um i also got involved in a lot of the like response to charles murray and the punishing of students from that in multiple iterations, um, because that was sort of playing out during my whole time there. Um, Charles Murray came my second week at Middlebury and was about to come (laughs) weeks after I left when the pandemic happened. So um, I was pretty involved in that and also in opposing sexual assaults on campus. And there were a bunch of different student movements like supporting migrant farm workers in the area, et cetera. Um, So I try to get involved in all of those because I see all of this is like very connected um, in terms of all the social injustices compound each other and the climate really compounds all of them. So that was one reason that I really wanted to focus on climate justice as well as all these other things is knowing that climate change impacts marginalized people the most and is a huge threat to everyone's survival. So I wanted to work on that while also being part of other things. Um, It was also where I had the most experience organizing personally doing stuff when I was in high school um, around climate. So I thought, oh, this is a place that could be helpful. Um, I also had some trans rights organizing experience. So I did some stuff with that as well at school um, around bathroom access, et cetera. But yeah, so I feel like I saw them all as very connected. And then I just ended up going to SNAG, um, which is sending an environmental group Back then it was just called Sunday Night Group and we changed the name because people thought we were a religious organization, um, which no. was fine, but it was just not quite accurate. Um, so I got, I went there and found a cool community and I was just like, okay, I have some skills here, I can help and um, one of the biggest things I tried to do when I was a coordinator at SNAG is tie us to all the other different campus movements and also off-campus movements so that we could have those interconnections.
0: Yeah, speaking of Snag, that's actually a great segue. And part of this podcast is also trying to understand different groups in order to like have a conversation with multiple organizing groups across the country. So um, specifically with Snag, I was really blown away by how easy it was for people to get involved and how um, easy it was for people to get leadership roles there. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering what about that organization made it possible for someone to have a leadership role and made it open to so many different people?
1: Yeah, I think SNAG has a really interesting structure. Um, and it's actually been one I've been trying to replicate a little bit in my work now um, out of college doing organizing because it, it worked pretty well for at least certain things. Other, other things were difficult. But um, one of the, my favorite parts about SNAG is that whenever new people come, they get hooked up with a buddy who can talk to them about their interests, about what SNAG is working on and help that person become more integrated into whatever part of the organization they want to work on. So that I found really helpful as a first year, and then later on got to help coordinate that program and bring in more first years and um, sort of help them expand their skills and leadership, which was so rewarding. Uh, So I think that helped. And SNAG structure is that there's sort of a coordinating body that runs the weekly meetings, but then anyone can propose a campaign or work on a campaign. So it's really easy to get very involved um, in divestment or another campaign that people are working on or start your own. And for me, I came at a time when divestment had been going on for about five years at that point and was sort of had had all this amazing organizing, amazing energy, and so much work by past students and was also hitting a little bit of a wall and was like, where, where do we go from here? So there were a lot of us that came in around then and were very excited. Um, and I think that that helped. They were like, oh, good, we need people to take on tasks, we need to, people to take on roles, and then we could push it forward, kind of like a divestment relay race for like seven years. So that that natural shift was happening when I came in and that definitely helped as well.
0: Yeah, that's actually also perfect because I was gonna ask next. Um, when I got to campus, I had no idea how long divestment had been going on for. And when I found out that it was started in 2013, I was just like, oh my God, like, how do you keep doing this? Um, especially still in se- 2017, it was still somewhat controversial. Um, there was definitely, you know, I was hearing lots of different viewpoints across campus, and I was really, you know, surprised that people were still pushing it, even though I obviously thought it was a great idea. I was like, that seems exhausting. So, what, um, what about Snag and what about the movement, like, kept you going, and what do you think, like, structure-wise, made it possible for you not to get burned out and not to give up? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I mean, there were definitely times when I was like, oh, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, So it wasn't all rosy, but I think having strong friendships with people in Snag definitely helped Um, seeing connections between what we were doing and like work that I'd been a part of or really cared about, even though a lot of times it felt and still feels like div- divestment was just wholly inadequate uh, to address like the bigger scale problems that were happening. That also helped because sometimes I was, I was just mad. I was like, I cannot believe that this school says that it's prioritizing um, students' futures when it just clearly isn't. Um, so that was helpful to have that like fire and anger about that. Um, and then also just thinking like, I really believed that we could win it. Um, and especially when we started to get momentum, it was like, oh shit this is changing, like this had not been possible for years and years and years. And there were a couple instances where all of a sudden there was a shift and it was like, oh, this is gonna work. And that was very exciting. Um, and of course like new students coming in was always great. <laughs> so I think that like a lot of times I struggle with student organizing is that people graduate out of it, um, which makes it really hard to run like a two year campaign because everybody who was leaving it leaves and all the new people come in and they're that like training and transition time isn't long enough. It makes it really great for like semester long or year long campaigns. And then like seven year long campaigns, it kind of works because there is the time to train people up in transition. So I think that the longer timeline actually helped in terms of by the time we won, a lot of alums came back to celebrate with us and they were like late 20s and they were like, whoa, this was a totally different context. But because we tr- shifted leaders also, we had been able to change our approaches to fit the different phases that Middlebury's institution was going through as well. So I think that that flexibility helped a bit.
0: Yeah, I also feel like it's a huge lesson for our generation and organizing in general that things just, they do not happen in a year or two no. years, or three no. years, or sometimes seven years. Yeah. And it can be especially difficult at an institution that you leave to not give up and to say like no I'm going to train more people and this is possible it's just going to take a long time.
1: Definitely yeah and I think that's especially after Divest passed why I started focusing mostly on training other students and um, sharing skills and building our connections with other organizations because it's those types of relationships that allow things to last really long and it's cool because now some of the results of things that I and other students had been working on like three, four years ago are now starting to happen with students working on them now. So that's really cool to watch from afar and be like, oh shit, all this work we did around environmental justice that felt like we were screaming into a void is now actually being institutionalized and addressed in a meaningful way. So that, that's kind of cool.
0: Um, what kind of work is that?
1: Yeah, part of Energy 2028, as well as divestment also included commitments to renewables and also a big commitment to environmental justice education. So when I was a student, I wanted to be an environmental justice major, but that wasn't a real thing. So I made one up. And then when um, Divest and Energy 2028 passed, it was kind of like, hey, can we pass this as well? And it did. So then a lot of students got a lot of say in shaping what that major looked like. There was a lot of donations that happened because of like rich board people getting excited about student organizing, not quite understanding what student organizing was, but saying here have a ridiculous amount of money to put towards activism education, towards environmental justice education. So then a lot of us were scheming behind the scenes and being like, "Hee hee, we're gonna take this money and use it for like radical trainings and stuff. And it didn't really work then, but now a lot of that money is actually becoming available for people to bring in like radical direct action trainers and stuff like that. So that's just cool to watch.
0: That's so cool to watch, it's incredible. Um, Yeah, I was gonna ask one more thing about it being such a long process is, did the message have to change over those seven years? Like what were the asks to begin with and what were the asks at the end? And um, are you happy with how it changed? Um, Frustrated with how it changed? Like how do you feel about it?
1: Yeah, that is a great question. The messaging changed a lot. Uh, Our ask didn't really change. Our ask had always been to divest from the top 200 publicly traded fossil fuel corporations which actually isn't what we won. We actually won them divesting from a lot more corporations than that. Um, but that wasn't what we were, we had to put a, a limit on it and make our ass concrete. So that's why we said top 200. And eventually they were like, okay, we're just gonna divest from all of the pipelines and et cetera as well, which was very cool. Um, in the end, the timeline that they're divesting over is much longer than we wanted. We wanted it to be like pretty immediate or within a couple of months or a year. And it's actually, like by 2028, they'll have all the money out, which is not ideal, um, but was a compromise we made in the, in the other direction. So our asks stayed the same, but what we actually won was a little bit different from that, um, better in some ways and worse in others. Our messaging definitely changed though. Um, talking to alums when they started a lot of their focus was on climate science and on the endowment and using the endowment as a political tool, which didn't really go over well because the board was like, we can't use the endowment as a political tool, no way. Um, Though they did end up winning a lot of things about sustainable investments and whatnot, which um, was that was like in the earlier phase of the campaign that I wasn't there for, but that's just what I remember them telling me about. And I know when I came in, A lot of the focus was still on climate change and climate justice, which is so important. And we kept that focus. And then we had meetings with the board where they basically accused us of knowing nothing about finance at all. So we started incorporating a lot more like economic analysis and having to do a lot of research on that um, about basically why it was a bad investment. Uh, And they kind of responded to that. So we kept that, um, but then as time went on, we also shifted our tone a little bit, so saying all the same things, but we had gone from being like super angry about it to the more credibility we got through getting more students involved, through passing referendums, through students and faculty. We also kept the same messaging, but um, became a little bit more cordial in our tone so that they would negotiate with us. And then they were like, oh, we have to take these people seriously now. Um, so we started dressing up in suits and coming to our protest and still doing the same protest, but like in suits. which for like rich board members somehow makes a huge difference. Uh, So that tonal shift was really big. And then we also really started talking about the impact of climate change on students and on students' futures and about the college mission statement because we'd been talking about how the college could be a leader in sustainability for other institutions, et cetera. and how like there was greenwashing and hypocrisy and them saying, oh, we're carbon neutral, but we're still invested in fossil fuels. So we kept all of that, but we really started saying, okay, climate change is hurting students now. This isn't a future thing. Talking about students from frontline communities, sharing our own experiences of fossil fuels, saying this is damaging our current lives and our future. We started tying our messaging a lot to the school's mission of helping students solve the most challenging problems at home and around the world. I must have said that phrase like 500 times at it least. It really
0: rolls up the tongue right
1: now. Oh yeah. You're like, and, oh, this is the mission statement. <laughs> um, and that was huge of saying like climate change is one of the world is, yeah, tied to all of the world's most challenging problems and one of it mm-hmm. individually as well for students right now and our future. So we started talking a lot about how you can't be preparing students for a future while investing the college endowment in the thing that destroys that future. It just makes no sense. And they, the, a lot of the board members are board members because they have grandchildren, because they have children. So we start pulling at their heartstrings a little bit, I think, um, and that made a huge difference. So I think that that messaging combined with the economic analysis, combined with the climate analysis, we sort of started adding pillars onto our argument. Um, and that was helpful because different messages appealed to different people on the board, et cetera. Um, so yeah, I think our messaging definitely evolved over time. And then another big part was tying it to the rest of Energy 2028, um, because people were trying to pass um, commitment to 100% renewables and all these other things that had been coming out of environmental council, environmental affairs department. So we started working like infiltrating environmental council and being like, can can we link all of this together. And that worked. And definitely helped pass it because they didn't want to vote yes just on divesting, but they would vote on this package because it was really hard to say no to some of the other stuff. And then they're like, "We wouldn't. Call, we won't call it divestment. We'll call it reducing our investments to zero, which is the same thing." Um, so, Absolutely the same thing. <laughs> oh, I know. So there was this whole battle that happened where we had divest fest which was like the week of events before they were voting to like really increase the pressure and basically be preemptively celebrating it so that they would feel encouraged to pass it and also a little afraid of people's disappointment if they didn't and we were going to call it divest fest and they were like you can't call it divest fest the board will freak out and not do it so we're like fine we'll call it fossil free fest and we kept all the events the same (laughs) but just called it fossil free fest and then they divested and they were like we knew that they weren't going to say the word divestment and that they were going to say reducing our portfolio exposure to zero, which is not a snazzy title. So they told us the night before, after they voted, there was like a secret meeting where they're like, okay, we voted yes. We're going to have the press conference tomorrow. You can't tell anyone yet, but it's happening. We're like, "Hee hee, they're not going to say divest. So we wrote all these press releases that said Middlebury divest, Middlebury divest, and lined up all of our press releases and our press contacts. And we were literally like sitting in the back of the press conference where they were announcing this, because as soon as they said it, we could start and like sending things to reporters. And then we had our own press conference. So all the headlines became Middlebury divests. And we I like- love that. <laughs> narrative, which certain people were not happy about because they were like, <laughs> you should have given the administration more credit. And we were like, why? I mean, some people in the administration definitely helped us, which was good, but it was a student campaign. Uh, so we, we did a lot of messaging capture afterwards with that.
0: Yeah. Also, I mean, they were divesting, like reducing our investments. That is, that is divestment. (laughs) And I think that's a huge lesson as well, like the um, adding pillars, as you said, to the messaging. Because I know that for myself and a lot of other people, um, the language around climate change has become really frustrating just because like the climate movement has been going on for so long. And why are people still not getting it? Why do people still not care? But adding pillars, adding layers, saying like, okay, this, board member cares about their grandchild, so let's talk about our futures. This board member um, works on Wall Street, so let's talk about the economy and just understanding the audience so much better, um, which takes time, which takes seven years. Um, I think that's super powerful. That's a really good lesson to people who are getting increasingly frustrated about climate messaging. That's yeah. awesome.
1: Thanks. I think another thing is that they The people who were not in favor of divestment really wanted to set up this like false binary of like we can fund financial aid and do well economically as a school and that that's like opposed to divesting so a lot of what we did was pop that bubble and say one this is not an economically sound decision at all but also talking about the impact of climate change on especially marginalized students, low income students students on financial aid and really like popping the idea that Middlebury is this like elite institution that's separate from all of these struggles because the institution is, but the students are not. And students have home lives where there's flooding, where there's drought, where there's fires. Um, So we started talking about that and also talk, like debunking the financial aid argument. And that was like complete bullshit. Like that was just not true. So we started debunking that and then they lost a lot of their like, oh, I can look morally righteous by saying no to divestment and realized oh I kind of look bad now <laughs> so I think that helped
0: yeah it's also like okay maybe seven years ago renewable energies weren't as profitable as they are now but by the time we divested I mean there's there's so much money in wind farms oh. and solar farms like saying that it's not equivalent to fossil fuels just it, like isn't true anymore
1: yeah Yeah, that also definitely helped is in the seven years since we started this, like how much more feasible renewable energy has become, how much clearer the climate science and the impacts of climate change have become, um, how many more other institutions have divested. So all of that was just external factors that were really helpful. Like in 2012, 2013, divestment looked like this radical thing. And now it looks like wow we should have done this a while ago and it's not nearly enough so that that shift definitely also is both unfortunate because all of this should have happened in like the 80s and then you know but also helped to do it
0: yeah you gotta do it at some point so at least at least we did it yeah um with that and like continued organizing you know moving forward trying to raise the new generation, teach the new generation. Um, I see now that you're working at the Climate Disobedience Center, which is awesome. And I have a lot of questions about um, how to organize now, like in 2021, like how do you organize in a pandemic? How do you teach people how to organize online? Um, what things over the past year have you learned about this? What works, what doesn't work? Yeah,
1: thanks. Um, no, coal gas has, is- different from divestment in that it's a direct action campaign, Mm -hmm. so most of what we do is physically going and removing coal from a coal plant so it can't be burned, or blocking coal trains so they can't get there, and we really have this focus on doing things, doing what must be done in terms of climate, uh, addressing climate change ourselves instead of waiting for people in power to do it, Um, so that's, that's been really interesting to learn about more and more, I've been doing direct actions for a while now but learning more about how powerful they can be and how empowering it can be to say you know these hedge fund managers these great operators are not going to make these shifts so we're just going to force them or do it ourselves um and in terms of climate organizing i think it's really where we need to be right now or maybe quite a while ago honestly um in terms of actually addressing the crisis like we can't be waiting around anymore for people in power to realize what's going on and make the right decision. Cause they know, they've always known and they have decided that they didn't care.
0: So oh, I- yeah. All those papers yeah. that came out from Exxon doing like an internal analysis about yeah. climate change like 30 years ago. Yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> great. Yeah,
1: I definitely get frustrated with climate organizing that's like, we're gonna convince people because it's like, no, they already, they already know. Um, so it's much more about how do we build power and community and relationships of trust and solidarity amongst ourselves so that we can one survive and also take this system down. So that's what I've been really interested in. The pandemic has made it a lot harder in certain ways because doing things in person is difficult. Um, In terms of the no coal, no gas stuff, we've done less in-person actions. We started organizing a utility strike for people not paying their utility bills because those bills are like 10 to 20% of everyone's bill in New England, even if you're signed up with a um, utility company that focuses on renewables, 10 to 20% of your bill is still going to fossil fuel subsidies. So we started organizing a strike for people to not pay their bills in protest. And we started organizing a lot of people to mail coal to the grid operators that we had taken from this coal plant to be like, you gotta stop this bullshit. So we've been mailing a lot of coal and delivering coal to folks and participating in comment periods around fossil fuel subsidies and doing really small actions. Um, And right now we're in a strategy process of building back towards bigger in-person actions again. Um, especially now that we know more about the pandemic and how to do actions in a safe way that are still disruptive or in-person. Over the summer, I was involved in a lot of other actions, especially focused on police abolition and racial justice that were in-person and did manage to happen safely, um, and be very disruptive. So I think that even with the pandemic, in-person organizing is still really possible and really important, especially like mutual aid has just been flourishing with the pandemic. I was involved with that at Middlebury and then have stayed involved with it afterwards and just participating in like food justice, food sovereignty projects and um, sharing supplies and resources across communities. And that's really lovely. And I think that the pandemic has really um, solidified the importance of mutual aid for a lot of people and really like involved the growth of mutual aid networks, which are also really easily shifted into direct action like because we had so many networks of mutual aid in Burlington we were able to really well support direct action that's been happening in the city um and also like when a disaster comes like the grid goes down or a hurricane comes because of climate change the mutual aid networks are also what a lot of people to not die so that's that's also been a huge lesson for me out of the pandemic is that piece of organizing and how important it is um and then we've been doing lots of online trainings. You could still build a lot of skills online with the pandemic, so that's been helpful. I don't know if that answered your
0: question. Oh, it does definitely. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to say that like, the um, the mutual aid spreadsheet that was going around when everybody had to get um, had to leave campus at Middlebury um, was so impressive, and it made me so proud to go to the school just because um, I saw it and I didn't even think twice about it, you know being something new or something different. because I was like, oh, of course like Middlebury is creating a mutual aid spreadsheet, like obviously. And then there were all those news stories that was like this college in New England that created mutual aid spreadsheets. And I was like, oh, right. Other people don't do this. (laughs) Like this is because there's so many great organizers at this institution. There's so many people who care. So that was awesome. Yeah, thanks. That was was fun
1: because that was the same group that was organizing to oppose Charles Murray. Just you were part of it. It just shifted right into that. I'm telling you things you already know, I think, but I guess the recording will know them now, too. Um, Yeah, that was cool to, like, see direct action groups shift right into mutual aid, and then now seeing mutual aid groups shift right into direct action. There's, like, so much fluidity there, which is cool, and then other colleges started picking it up, too, which is neat, because then there's, like, a ripple effect sometimes with all these things, and that's been cool to watch in the pandemic of something starts like in California and then we start doing it in Vermont or vice versa, so.
0: Yeah, I think that um, like the power of just seeing people who care and who are passionate, like is so, um, like people don't notice, don't realize how important that is sometimes just to see like our peers creating something because they care about each other and realizing that like, oh, we should be doing that too. Like it is incredibly yeah. powerful and moving.
1: Yeah, and it also forces people who are have institutional power to pay attention. Um, I don't know if you know this, but like a lot of the organizing of that spreadsheet ended up spurring Middlebury to free up more on campus housing or ended up spurring Middlebury to be like, oh shit, the students are gonna take care of each other in a way that makes us look bad. And then they got a little freaked out and then they were worried. And I got called into a meeting where they were like, this is cool, but also we're a little concerned and we're gonna take care of everybody. And I was like, okay, you take care of everybody and we'll, we'll hold the gaps. And um, so it helps people Then it also makes people. It, uh, I think one of my favorite things about mutual aid is it shows that institutions of power are not set up to take care of people um, and are not necessary <laughs> sometimes.
0: So that's cool. Yeah, or that they're not tapped in at all to what people need and what they're yeah. asking for. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thing about the future of organizing, um, I'm hoping to speak with someone next week or in a couple of weeks who's trying to organize divestment at Pomona because um, they oh. still are not divested. Yeah. And I was wondering if you had any advice for him and advice for that group in general of how to reconfigure their attempts to get Pomona to divest?
1: oh, I'd have to know about what they're doing because the divestment situation at all the colleges is different. I would love to, I feel like I talked to someone at Pomona like a couple years ago. There's like this vague network of divest activists that like sometimes help each other out, which is so fun. I got, we got so much help from people in Boston um, <laughs> during the Middlebury campaign. But yeah, I have to see what they're doing. I'd say the student referendum really worked for us The talking about the impact on students' futures really worked for us. The pretending to be really official and reasonable, but sort of like having this thread of we will freak out if you don't take us seriously worked for us. But I don't know, all the colleges are super different. So I imagine they're doing really amazing work and would love to hear what they're working on.
0: Yeah, from what I understand, and I'll also do more research obviously before interviewing him, um, it seems like some of the five colleges have divested and some of them haven't. So like Pitzer has, but Pomona hasn't. Um, And it's a little bit muddy with um, with the other colleges in that consortium.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'd also say if they can find like one administrative ally that's willing to support Mm -hmm. them, like we had David Provo. He really helped. He was like, the treasurer, and he was like, okay, I remember the assembly where Investor came to tell us why they shouldn't divest, and we kind of roasted them in the the question and answer, and he was like standing on the stage looking really confused, being like, I mean, I guess Middlebury should divest, right? And then, no after that, um, and then he was a huge ally after that, and it was great, and he helped us so much, and um, yeah, he really 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 helped in terms of like helping us be taken seriously and doing the like in the inside political behind the scenes organizing with people with a lot of money and he speaks their language so that was great Uh, yeah that's advice get the treasure on your side
0: (laughs) sweet yeah um, so before we go into the final game that I have set up, um, are there any questions that you think I missed out? Anything else that you would like me to ask you or tell me about um, like climate organization in general?
1: I mean, honestly, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious about like your thoughts on all of this and like keep wanting to ask you, but then it's an interview and I don't want to mess it up. <laughs> but like um, of like what you're seeing on campus now and like what you're, because you were like, you were always like, Involved in a lot of things on campus and in a lot of the especially like feminist organizing. And then we're also in a lot of the conversations we were talking about divest, and like you'd be like talking to Marius in the other room. <laughs> and I feel like I would love to hear your like honest thoughts on all of it and also what you're seeing now and like what you're called to and involved in. But imagine maybe you're putting this in your podcast. I don't know. I'm just saying, I think you're cool and I'm curious about your thoughts on things. Okay, well, you saying
0: that I'm cool is like, the best thing that's ever happened to me. So that's <laughs> great. Thank you. Um, yeah, I think that when I came to campus, I definitely was on, um, I guess, the pillar of like this school cares or says so much about like its environmental studies program. And it, you know, has like, oh, we have Bill McKibben and he's the best like environmentalist ever, um, like on every brochure and would talk about our features and about how we you know go to liberal arts schools to solve problems and then they weren't divesting and I was like that doesn't make sense like you claim to be like this radical institution that is setting us up to like be the future and like be like the generation that helps everyone else out apparently um and then is refusing to do like the very simple task of divestment and to listen to its students who are saying like we will not have a future if you do not divest from fossil fuels like very plainly and I was just so confused honestly that it had been going on for so long and that they continually um to divest so I think that was something that really won me over to your cause for sure um I regret not getting more involved in snag honestly I thought the work that you were doing was so incredible and I just um, yeah, I wish that I got more involved. That's a huge regret for sure. You but did other
1: cool stuff though. Like, sorry, I'm not trying to argue with you.
0: Oh, no, no, no. Um, Interrupt you. I, I just, yeah, I just thought that your movement was so incredible and like so interesting and informative and like, um, that's part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast is just so I can learn from people and be like, how do I get more involved in the future? Stuff like that. Um, selfishly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that was my my main take on divestment was just like I was so frustrated by how the school kept pretending to be to like care about climate change or like literally get students to come to Middlebury because of its environmental studies program, and then wasn't doing the bare minimum to actually solve climate change. So I was very very happy when they finally realized that and started to divest. Yeah,
1: yeah, I feel like they're still doing a lot of that in terms of Energy 2028 with like the Goodridge Farm and like hooking up to biogas at a farm that exploits migrant workers really badly. And then we're like, they're like, we're green and just
0: like, nah, gotta go after that.
1: I feel like some students are doing that and that's super cool.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's definitely been difficult this semester um, in terms of organizing, but there's been some, there's been some impressive protests and there's been some, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk like on social media about how to get Middlebury to to improve in a number of different ways so that's exciting. Yeah, has organizing on campus been really hard with the pandemic? It has been just because every meeting is a zoom meeting and then you feel like you're in class and then you're like I just don't want to go to another zoom meeting no matter how interesting and important it is.
1: Yeah oh that sucks.
0: Yeah. Yikes
1: yeah, my heart really goes out to all the activists still on campus. I was just like, I'm
0: done. Um, okay, so I thought we just finish this up with a game. Yeah. So three quotes, um, some of them are real, some of them are fake, um, by people who are against the divestment movement. Ah, yes. So I'm going to read this to you, and then you have to guess whether it's a real quote or a fake quote. Hmm. Um, all right, so the first one is, We should, moreover, be very wary of steps intended to instrumentalize our endowment in ways that would appear to position the university as a political actor rather than an academic institution.
1: Oh yeah, I've heard that personally.
0: Yeah, that's real. Yeah, that's real. (laughs) Yeah, that was Harvard president Drew Faust in 2013 talking about the Harvard divestment movement. And he was very worried that it would be political. I've definitely heard like almost the same phrase from people at Middlebury. It's like, oh, God forbid we, our future is political. Like,
1: <laughs> and like everything the school does is political. You can't have an educational institution that's not political,
0: like that's not possible. Also asking, like refusing to divest, to divest once it's become a question is also political.
1: Yeah, absolutely which is I think another thing that we that was helpful with our messaging is being like choosing not to divest just, just as much of a statement and a choice.
0: Yeah, that's that huge. Helpful. Yeah. All right, quote number two is, our role as an institution is to prepare our students to solve the problems of tomorrow. We cannot do that if there are no problems. Therefore, we feel a responsibility to contribute to climate change.
1: Um, I've never heard that. I kind of doubt that's real. Though it is kind of the underlying thing a lot of people were saying when they tried to sound like they weren't saying that.
0: Yeah, it's fake, I made it up. Um, Okay, the last one I have for you is, thanks to coal, oil and natural gas, billions of humans uh, live better, safer, healthier, cleaner and richer lives than they would otherwise. If all you wanna do is strike a self-righteous pose, a divestment campaign is the way to go. Oh
1: yeah, that sounds like a lot of the propaganda that I've heard from fossil fuel industries against divestment.
0: Yes, that is correct. That was Jeff Jacoby in the Boston Globe in 2020. Fun. <laughs> Last year after um, Harvard and Yale students um, stormed the football game. Oh, that was an amazing action. Mm, that was awesome.
1: That was so cool. Yeah, yeah. I know some people who were involved in that and I was just like, holy shit, you all are
0: cool. Yeah, um, if you want to just break into a rage sweat, just read that op-ed in the Boston Globe. It's horrific. There, We found this website
1: called the American Petroleum Institute. Oh no. <laughs> which was like run by Chevron or something. I don't exactly remember, but they liter- it, they ran this other website called Divest Facts, which was just propaganda against divestment and yeah it was the american petroleum institute ran this divest facts website and they like literally wrote articles about why middlebury shouldn't divest it and would never divest and we would literally take those articles to the board and be like you are being used as fossil fuel propaganda how do you feel about that and then they'd be like oh oops <laughs> that was pretty fun um which is so funny because that website was both being like divestment won't help the climate it won't hurt fossil fuels at all and then at the same time, Chevron comes out with these statements saying that divestment is one of their biggest threats to their business. It's like, you can't have both people. You can't. So, yeah. Those quotes are fun. Oh, yeah. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Well, you up. <laughs> well thank you so, so much for a good interview. This is so interesting. Honestly, I learned so much oh you too this is fun Uh, it's nice to see you too and talk to you yeah if you want to talk more or anything I'm always happy to I'd like to personally thank Leaf yet again for coming and speaking with me on this Wednesday afternoon Um, they took valuable time out of their day to talk to me to inform me about the issues I genuinely learned so much more about divestment from this conversation which was just phenomenal so thank you Leaf, and Thank you, Professor Sanchez, for helping me make this podcast possible. I am so excited for the weeks to come. And thank you for listening to the first ever episode of Activist Listening.